okay, let's start with a word of prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and the opportunity to gather together as the body of Christ and, and to worship you, Lord. We, we thank you for your word and the opportunity we have to study your word uh, here for the next little while. Uh, we thank you for your love for us, your love for the church. Uh, in sending Christ to die on this cross for our sins. We thank you for your sovereignty over all things, from now all the way to the end of time. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and for your worthiness of all of our praise and honor and worship. And we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each and every one of us this morning so that we can really understand what you want to teach us from your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, before I get started, uh, last week there was a question. Um, uh, Tegan asked a question about uh, heaven and hell and Hades and these sort of things. And uh, there wasn't really much time to give a, a proper answer to that question. And so um, I put together some materials about that. And I think there's a handout that has that material on it. Uh, we're not necessarily going to go into that in great detail today. We will later. Uh, but I wanted to give you that material because the question came up last time. Uh, and it was a good question. Um, so we will, we will get into some details of that. But I wanted you to have a detailed answer to that question in the meantime. So, uh, so that's it in your hands there. If you have other questions about um, heaven and hell and how the Bible addresses those things, uh, don't hesitate to ask. But I think most of the answers are in that, uh, that handout I made. And so uh, I think they made some hard copies of it you can look at. It's also posted on Hopebook, and you can look at that. Also, all of the PowerPoint slides are posted on Hopebook as well. So you can always go back and look at the PowerPoint slides. Either uh, you can look at them, uh, you can download them to your computer, look at them on your computer, you can print them out if you want. Uh, but they're all available. Uh, so here we are up to part five. So uh, here we've, we've done some introduction. We've taken a look at um, the kind of initial vision that John gets and his uh, task that he's given to, to write these letters. And now we're going to get into the actual letters that Christ sends to his church. Uh, and we're going to go one by one through these letters over the next uh, several weeks, seven weeks it'll take to get through all these. And so today we're going to start with the first letter, which is to the church in Ephesus. So here's what we're going to, so as usual, I will tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I told you. So uh, this is telling you what I'm going to tell you. Uh, so what we'll learn today. So we're going to look at this letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, and we're going to look at some aspects of this letter. We're going to look at the correspondent, who it's from. We're going to look at the church that it's sent to. We're going to look at the city in which this church resides. We're going to look at the commendation that Christ first gives to this church, then the concern that he brings up, and then the command he gives to this church, and then the counsel that he gives to the church. So those are the things that we'll look at, the aspects of this letter uh, that we're going to look at one by one. We'll go through this uh, verse by verse, this letter that Christ sends to his church through his servant John. But first, we'll do a little review. So how did we get here? How did we get to this letter 
to Ephesus. So first, there was this vision of the glorified Son, and of course he's standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, so he's in the midst of his church. This is a, a picture of Christ. He's right there, he's imminent, he's got authority over his church, he's protecting his church, um, he's admonishing his church, he's right there with his church. That's the whole point of that, that vision. So uh, John mentions his name, as we said, and he hadn't done that before in his gospel or his, uh, his epistles. He, he didn't mention his name, but here he does. Uh, he's kind of astonished that he's receiving this uh, profound vision. Um, even though he's an apostle and he's one of the closest uh, companions of Christ when, during Christ's earthly ministry, uh, he's got a, a humility to him. Uh, he, he addresses the, the people he's corresponding with as your brother. Um, he identifies with them as a fellow partaker in their tribulation. Uh, he's actually writing this letter, seeing this vision, and writing these things down on the island of Patmos. He's in, in exile. And he's in exile because he's been arrested for preaching. And so that's his crime, is, is preaching the word of God. So he receives this vision, he's in the spirit, and so it's a uh, kind of a transcendental experience. It's not, um, he's not, uh, it's not an ordinary vision, it's uh, a vision of the mind's eye. Uh, through the Spirit. The Spirit's revealing things to him that are beyond the normal senses of a human being. Uh, he, he experiences it in a kind of a uh, dramatic fashion. There's a loud voice, it sounds like a trumpet, and he's told to write. He's told to write to particular churches, and those particular churches are on the old post road, the postal road, and they're in the order that the postal system would have delivered letters in those days, uh, going from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamon to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia to Laodicea along the post road. So he describes this first. He described the circumstances, and then he describes the actual vision he sees. He he's originally he's got his back to where the the voice is coming from. He turns around, and then he sees, and he sees the lampstands. And we find out at the end of the vision that the lampstands are the seven churches, and he sees where the voice is coming from, and he sees one like a son of man. Uh, so he's actually seen Christ in in the flesh when Christ was on his earthly ministry. John was his close companion for three years. Now he sees Christ in a completely different light. He sees the risen, glorified Christ. Um, and it's, it's no longer just the Son of Man. It's kind of like a Son of Man, but much more glorious. He describes the clothing that he's wearing, this robe that, uh, that was a royal robe or a priestly robe. Uh, he describes what he looks like, his hair white like snow, uh, his eyes like flame coming out, um, his feet, uh, burnished feet, um, the sound of his voice, and then some of the, uh, some of the imagery that then he, he then uses are very similar imagery to Old Testament descriptions of God the Father. And so these are... Uh, clear descriptions of Christ in his divinity. Um, and so the, sound, the, the voice like sound of many waters, that's a description in the Old Testament of God's voice. And now it's being applied to the risen Christ. Uh, and then his authority is demonstrated by holding the seven stars in his right hand, 
Um, they're the messengers of the seven churches. We talked about this last time. The Greek word angelos is typically translated angels, God's messengers. But the, the Greek word itself just means messengers. And in this case, I think from the context, the messengers are the human messengers that are probably elders of each of the seven churches that are going to deliver the letter. And Christ, by holding them in his right hand, is showing that he has authority over them, over the leadership of the church. He is the head of the church. He's got elders that are the under-shepherds that are under him, but he holds them in his right hand with authority. Um, and so that's got kind of John's vision of what uh, the risen Christ looks like. And the key is that he's standing in the middle of the seven lampstands. He's with his church. Um, and so this, uh, this vision obviously has an effect on John. He falls down like a dead man. Um, he's, seen the, he's seen the glorified Christ once before, the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And Jesus at that time comforted John because at that time he fell down like a dead man too. Um, now Jesus comforts him once again. Uh, and identifies himself in a couple of interesting ways. The living one, he was dead and he's alive forevermore. Uh, identifying himself with these, um, these marks of deity uh, that he has. And um, identifying himself as the one who has authority over death. Clearly, he has the keys to death in Hades, so therefore he has authority over death. And then John gets his charge to write these things down, and it's a little bit more detailed than in the previous lesson we talked about the fact that he's told to write. But now he's told to write in a specific way. He's told, he's given kind of three features of what he's supposed to write about. First one is the things which you have seen. And then the things which are, and then the things which will take place after these things. And so this is kind of an outline for what the book's going to look like. So John is given that by the risen Christ right here at the end of chapter number one. The outline of what the kinds of things that he's supposed to write. Okay, so that's where we've been. Uh, to get up to this point. So he's been told to write these things down. And now the first things that he's supposed to write, uh, the first details are given to him here beginning in chapter 2. And they're written, each one, this is seven letters to seven different churches. And we're going to look at the first one today. So if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. So a Bible or a device that has the Bible on it. Uh, and take a look at Revelation chapter 2. So here's the, the scripture that we're going we're gonna to be investigating today. So uh, starting in verse 1, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love, 
Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you, you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that's Christ's letter to a particular church in the first century, and also an application to churches for all time. Uh, That's why the Holy Spirit has it recorded in the Scriptures, because it not only has application then, but it has application today as well. Uh, So, in general, so there's Ephesus. Um, Ephesus is... uh, the first on the postal road, the first city on the postal road, you can see Patmos there. So, uh, so there's Patmos, and there's Ephesus, and so uh, a letter, the first letter there, and then around the horn to all the other uh, seven, church, six churches as well. But starting with Ephesus, the first one, um, and so what do we see here? We see first praise for their hard work and perseverance. Then we see criticism; they've forgotten their first love. Then we see an exhortation to repent. And we see a reward, a right to eat from the tree of life. And so that's the general structure of Christ's letter to this church. So uh, first I want to start out with a little introduction that uh, John MacArthur has in his commentary. So uh, these are the words of John MacArthur in his commentary to to introduce this section of Scripture. Uh, He says, many things characterize Christians, including reverential fear of God, a desire to imitate Him, holiness, and obedience. But the supreme characteristic of a Christian is love for his Lord and God. When challenged to name the single greatest commandment of the law, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. He challenged his disciples to make love for him the highest priority of their lives. Uh, In Matthew chapter 10, he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. In John 14, he added, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. The true children of God, Jesus declared, will love him and be known by him. To discern Peter's spiritual condition, Jesus asked him three times, Do you love me? In John chapter 21. Paul defined Christians as those controlled by the love of Christ in 2 Corinthians. Those who love Jesus Christ are blessed, according to Ephesians chapter 6. Those who do not are cursed, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. While love for Lord Jesus Christ will always be present in true Christians, it can fluctuate in its intensity. Christians will not always love Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to fail to do so is sin. 
There is no better illustration in Scripture of the seriousness of allowing love for Christ to wane than this letter to the church at Ephesus. And so that's how John MacArthur introduces his, this section of his commentary on uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. And I think that's a good introduction. So let's take a look at what this uh, scripture says and what uh, Jesus has to say to his church. So first we have the correspondent identified. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So that's the introduction. The writer is not named by name, but the description makes it obvious who this is. Uh, it's the one that was just depicted in the lesson we did last week, the end, the last half of chapter 1, as the glorified, exalted Christ uh, standing amidst his church. Uh, the phrase, the one who holds the seven stars and the one who walks among the seven lampstands are taken directly from chapter 1, the one through what we just studied, uh, the, the description of John's vision of the glorified Christ. Uh, he ident- Christ identifies himself to each of the first five churches using phrases from the vision in chapter 1. Um, so we'll see that again as he addresses the first five churches. Chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 1. All of them refer to this, uh, to the, they quote from the vision from chapter 1 to make sure it's clear who it is that's corresponding with this churches. It is the risen, glorified uh, Christ. And so this reinforces the truth. This hammers it home. The fact that the author of these letters is Christ. Uh, They're his direct words through the Apostle John to those local congregations in the first century and also to churches like them throughout all the years intervening. So Christ is identifying particular problems with churches in the first century But the reason the Holy Spirit has it recorded, not only for them in the first century, but for us to read throughout all the history of the church is, these are common problems uh, that that Christ is identifying with churches, and we need to heed these words ourselves, even today. So, um, any questions so far? Yes? Yeah, so right. Yeah, so uh, we talked about this last time. This the word angelo there most likely, I think, from the context is um, the elders of the church that are actually going to be messengers that are carrying this thing, and so John is writing to be able to hand to most likely the elder or leader of that church to take. And that's, uh, I think, what Christ is saying. He's saying, write a letter that then this elder is going to go take to that church. And it's going to be delivered by their elder, pastor, shepherd, their local guy, is going to read this out to to the church. And I think that's why it's structured like that. So the seven stars represent leaders um, of the seven churches, um, I think. I think the context makes that, uh, makes that fairly clear. Um, 
Christ holds them in his right hand and indicates that they are his ministers under his power as he mediates his sovereign rule in the church through human leaders. And so, uh, you know, Christ could have organized and structured the church any way he wanted, but he chose to organize and structure the church with local elders, pastors, shepherds in leadership under his authority. Uh, So Christ is the head of the church. There's no question about that. But he has appointed human leaders to be under shepherds, under him. And so that's, in his wisdom, he's chosen to organize the church that way. Uh, But it's also very, very clear who has these seven stars in his hand. It's Christ. So he has complete and total authority and control over those uh, earthly leaders. Um, They are his ministers under his power um, and through whom he uh, he exercises his uh, authority over the church. Uh, He further describes himself as the one who walks among the golden lampstands. And in uh, chapter 1, verse 20, we saw that those are... specifically identified as the church is he's uh, he's he's this shows him um, his control or authority over his church as he scrutinizes examines assesses and evaluates them and as we see in each one of these letters he, he is uh, directly evaluating these churches and giving them feedback so this is feedback, the evaluation of the one who's in authority. Uh, this is your boss giving you your annual performance review, so to speak, and it's being delivered by these uh, messengers that he's sending uh, to each one of the churches. Uh, as its sovereign ruler, he has authority to address these churches. They're, uh, he, he, he owns them, the churches. He's, they're responsible to him, and so he's exercising this this is one way to exercise this authority is to give them feedback uh, how they doing and so if we take a look at this individual church it's a very interesting church uh, it has a tremendous heritage rich heritage um, in this congregation that we know of from other passages of the New Testament there's quite a lot written about Ephesus in the New Testament, other than uh, just this passage in Revelation. So we, we learn that the gospel was introduced to the city of Ephesus by Paul's close friends, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, in Acts chapter 18. They were joined by another preacher uh, named Apollos, also uh, identified in chapter 18. And so we have Priscilla, we have Aquila, we have Apollos laying the groundwork for Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So so before Paul ever got there, there were these missionaries, these ministers to the people in Ephesus, uh, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. And then Paul stops there briefly near the end of his... So Paul made three missionary journeys. Near the end of his second missionary journey, also described in Acts 18, he stops there uh, in Ephesus for the first time. But his main ministry there was during his... um, Well, so during that first encounter, uh, he finds some uh, Old Testament saints there. He finds people that don't know about the Holy Spirit. They only know about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was preaching the coming of first coming of Christ. And so they had heard about that, but
but they hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. They'd never been baptized into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into Christ. And so uh, Paul teaches them about that, the, the whole gospel, and baptizes them. And then he comes back in his third missionary journey, and he spends three years there. So Paul spends three years in Ephesus uh, teaching and preaching there. Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 20. Um, and then later, as he's on his way, at the very end of his third missionary journey, he's going back to Jerusalem. And before he goes back to Jerusalem, he calls the elders from the church in Ephesus to him to come see him before he goes back. And he gives a whole, um, in chapter 20, he gives a long um, kind of speech to the elders of the church of Ephesus about the things they're supposed to watch out for and how they're supposed to look over the flock, right there in Acts chapter 20. That's Paul's speech to the elders from the church in Ephesus. Um, and he gives them principles for church leadership and the things that they're supposed to, supposed to do. Um, later we see in 1 Timothy that Timothy served as a pastor in the church of Ephesus. Onesiphorus um, in 2 Timothy is also uh, another minister there, Tychicus. Um, two of Paul's fellow laborers, he describes in 2 Timothy, are our ministers there at Ephesus. And finally, we have the testimony, not only of the, the scriptures, but then also the testimony of the early church. Uh, early church leaders that wrote things down about the church in Ephesus. Uh, they say, according to them, um, the Apostle John spent... Uh, decades there living and ministering in Ephesus. So Ephesus had this great concentration of, uh, of God's ministers were there working in the church in Ephesus. Um, these initial mi missionaries, then Paul for three years, and then John for decades, they had a lot of spiritual attention, this church in Ephesus. Uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ really gave them uh, solid leadership for many years for that church. Um, and John was probably living there when he wrote his epistles, uh, First, Second, and Third John. And he was probably, that was probably where he was arrested and sent to Patmos. So uh, the Roman authorities arrested him and sent him to the clo closest prison island because Ephesus is just right off the coast, Patmos is just right off the coast of Ephesus. All right, so we have all this uh, background of this church, a lot of emphasis on this church. Uh, the Holy Spirit put a lot of effort and emphasis into this church. And so uh, we also see a lot of dramatic and remarkable events around the birth of this church in Ephesus. So, um, so what do we see? We see um, God supernaturally affirmed Paul as his spokesman through a, a series of spectacular miracles, which are recorded in Acts chapter 19. Uh, so Paul had... Um, had, had exercised demons there in Ephesus. And there was a, a group of Jews who saw Paul exercising demons, and they tried it themselves, and the demons beat them half to death. Um, and the demons said things like, Jesus I know, and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? And, and then beat them half, half to death. Uh, that happened in Ephesus. Uh, and that debacle spread consternation and, fear, consternation and fear throughout the city. And the way that it's put in, in Acts chapter 19, this caused the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified. The fact that Paul, in the name of Christ, could drive out demons, but other people couldn't drive out demons. <clears throat> 
and so this the shock this shocked into realizing the futility of trusting pagan practices. Um, many all so in at the end of that passage in Acts chapter nineteen it says this. Many also of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices, their former pagan practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. And so that's a lot of books, a lot of expensive books. 50,000 pieces of silver is about 50,000 man days of labor, which is about 160 years. So a person would have to work for about 160 years to save up the money to buy all these pagan um, books of magic and uh, necromancy that, uh, that they brought to be burned because they had become followers of Christ and they'd put aside their pagan practices. All that happened in Ephesus. And so this striking conversion of large numbers of Ephesians posed a severe economic threat to the city's pagan craftsmen. And so we have uh, Ephesus was the center of the worship of the goddess Artemis. Artemis to the Greeks, Diana to the Romans. Uh, and the temple there in Ephesus to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so we also see in the book of Acts, of Acts Uh, that there was a silversmith named Demetrius. And on behalf of his fellow craftsmen of silver idols, saw their business going down the drain, then they reacted violently. And the ensuing riot threw Ephesus into chaos, according to Acts chapter 19. And so all all this is recorded in Acts about the church and the city of Ephesus. So there's lots of material, lots of um, there's lots of emphasis actually uh, in Acts about this one particular city of Ephesus. And but by the time this letter is written, uh, about 95 A.D., about four decades have passed since that tumultuous birth of the church. So all these miraculous events happened, and the church was was on a firm foundation, Apostle Paul, Apostle John. But now four decades have passed. And in four decades, do you think people can forget? How long did it take the Israelites to forget that God had miraculously brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea? I mean, a month, right? By a month. They had seen all these miracles, and a month later they were whining and complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. So in four decades, can people forget all these miracles that God did in Ephesus at the birth of the church? Well, yes, they can, and yes, they did. Um, so time has passed since this birth. The Apostle Paul is gone, as were the first generation of believers gone. Um, A new situation called for another inspired letter to the Ephesians, and this one from the Lord himself, penned by the Apostle John. So they needed to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ. Four decades had passed. They had, as we'll see, they had lost their first love, and they needed this. Uh, They needed this. So, uh, what about the city itself? So the city of Ephesus... Uh, was not the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Uh, Pergamum was. Pergamum was the official capital. However, Ephesus was the largest and most important city. Uh, The Roman governor of the province of Asia actually resided in Ephesus. 
And so he didn't live in the capital. He lived in Ephesus, which was the biggest, nicest city. Um, and so it could be argued that Ephesus was the de facto capital, not the official capital, but really it was kind of like uh, acting like the capital. Uh, the population in New Testament times estimated between 250,000 and 500,000 people. That's a really big city for these times. It's a huge city for those times. Um, the biggest city of, of all those uh, in the province of Asia. Uh, the city's theater, uh, which is still visible today. So there's ruins, but the theater is actually still there, parts of it. Um, that theater, um, in, in the, it's described in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the rioters, the frenzied rioters were dragging Paul into this theater. In Acts chapter 19, it's still there. The ruins of that thing are still there. And uh, estimated to hold about 25,000 people. So that's a big arena. Um, that's, a, that's a big arena, uh, even by modern standards, an arena that can fit 25,000 people. That's a lot. Uh, and the ruins of it are still there. Ephesus was a free city, so it was self-governing governing within limits, and no Roman troops were garrisoned there. Big, important, free city. Uh, and it hosted athletic events rivaling the Olympic Games. So the Olympic Games weren't there, but they had their own kind of uh, Olympic Games that were b- a big deal. So Ephesus was the primary harbor in the province of Asia. Uh, and by law, incoming Roman governors had to enter Asia through Ephesus. The city was located on a river called the Caister River. Uh, and the city was about three miles upriver from where the river actually flowed into the sea. So the city wasn't located at the harbor. It was three miles upriver from the harbor uh, where the city was. Uh, those disembarking at the harbor traveled along a magnificent, wide, column, uh, column-lined road called the Arcadian Way. So one of the most famous roads in the Roman Empire was from the harbor at Ephesus to the city of Ephesus, and it was called the Arcadian Way. A uh, magnificent wide road with columns all the way along the side for that three miles from the harbor to the city. Uh, even in John's day, silt deposited by the river was filling up the harbor, and they had to keep dredging the harbor, and it was a, it was a continuous fight to keep the harbor open, and ultimately that battle was lost. And today the ruins of Ephesus are six miles from the sea. So there's an additional three miles of silt that's built up more land, so it's even farther from the sea today than it was in those days. And Ephesus, of course, as we mentioned, was strategically located. It was on this post road, but it was also the junction of four roads, uh, Roman roads that went around Asia Minor. Uh, So it was a main harbor. It was a main thoroughfare for roads. It was the first road on the postal road, so ships would come into the harbor, uh, and then the the post uh, the letters and things were distributed from Ephesus around this post road to the other uh, cities, um, and so Eph- Ephesus was the key city really in uh, Asia Minor, and so there's no um, there's no mystery about why. Uh, the Holy Spirit would concentrate spiritual effort there in the church in Ephesus. It was an important city, and it was important f- 
to the Lord to have these 250,000, these 500,000 people in this huge city that were captured by paganism uh, to, to shine the light of truth in that city. Um, and so that's where the, the Lord starts with his letters, uh, Ephesus. So Ephesus, of course, was famous, as we see in Acts, as the center of worship of the goddess Artemis. Um, Artemis to the Greeks, Diana to the Romans. And it was a point of great civic pride. And we see that come out in the description in Acts. They were really proud of being the city uh, that was the focal point of this pagan worship. Uh, The Temple of Artemis was Ephesus' most prominent landmark. Um, Its inner shrine was supposedly totally inviolable. And so the temple actually served as one of the most important banks in the Mediterranean world. So it was not only a temple, it was also a bank, a really important bank um, in the Mediterranean world. So the temple and its environs were also a sanctuary for criminals. And so it was an absolutely chaotic thing. Uh, it was uh, the sale of items used in the worship of Artemis provided it an important source of income. We see that in Acts chapter 19 as well. Because when it starts to be threatened, um, they, they react violently. And then every spring, a month-long festival was held in honor of the goddess, goddess Artemis, um, complete with athletic and dramatic and musical events. And Paul may have anticipated this annual event as a unique evangelistic opportunity and have been waiting for it when he wrote to the Corinthians that he intended to remain in Ephesus. So in 1 Corinthians, he closes that letter by saying, hey, I've got to remain in Ephesus a little while longer. And speculation is he wanted to be there for this huge festival as an evangelistic opportunity. So... Um, it's, I think it's nice to have some of this background to understand the situation into which um, uh, this letter is being spoken. So, uh, the worship of Artemis was unspeakably vile. Uh, the idol was a gross monstrosity um, believed to have fallen from the heaven, um, described in Acts chapter 19. Uh, the temple was attended by priests and eunuchs and slaves. There were thousands of priestesses who were little more than ritual prostitutes. And they played a major role in the worship of Artemis. Uh, So the temple grounds were a chaotic mix of priests and prostitutes and bankers, because it was a bank too, and criminals, because it was a a safe haven for criminals. Musicians, dancers, and frenzied hysterical worshipers. And so this is the chaos into which first uh, Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and then the Apostle Paul, this is the chaos into which he stepped. And Paul ministered there for three years because he saw all this darkness. And the, the Holy Spirit prompted him to spend a huge chunk of his ministry in this city. Three years he spent there uh, ministering. And then, after that, the Holy Spirit sent the Apostle John there uh, to minister. Uh, there was a lot of darkness in this uh, city of Ephesus. Um, yeah. Uh, she may have, but I'm not certain. Uh, do you know the reference for that? I, 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 I don't know. It could be. Uh, could be, because John was the one that was tasked with taking care of her. So it makes sense that uh, even if it wasn't John following Mary, if John went there, he most 
he probably could have taken Mary with him because he was the one charged with watching over her. Yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, so Jesus' mother may have been there as well when John went. Um, there's a, um, a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, um, and he is known as the weeping philosopher because according to him, no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. Um, that was a pagan philosopher saying that. So in the, in the eyes of a pagan philosopher, the immorality in Ephesus was so bad that it was remarkable to a pagan philosopher um, that Ephesus was really, really, really bad in this area of immorality. And so, huddled in the midst of this pagan idolatry and immorality, we have in Ephesus a faithful group of Christians. Uh, it was to them that Christ addressed this first of the seven letters. So that's the background. You have this magnificent city, huge city, key city in the Roman Empire, but it's also the center of, of terrible pagan idolatry. And so you can see the, the hand of Satan and the plan of Satan. He's, there's a really important city there, so we've got to corrupt it and make it, uh, make it horrific and awful. Um, and so Satan attacks, uh, but uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is not... Uh, he's not um, he doesn't stand by uh, idly. He sends his ministers to that great city. He sends uh, first uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, then he sends Paul for three years, then he sends John. Uh, he sends his warriors into the heart of darkness there. Um, and that's the church at Ephesus that Christ is now going to address with the first of his letters. And so this is what he says in the letter. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And so there are evil men all around them. Um, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. So actual evil men trying to infiltrate the church and to say that uh, they, they can speak for the Lord when they can't. And Jesus is saying that you have been able to sniff these people out. And you put those to the test who call themselves apostles and they are not and found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And so there was persecution all the way from the very beginning. Apostle Paul is dragged out into the, uh, to the amphitheater and they're going to stone him to death. Um, so from the very beginning, there's opposition, and there's still, obviously, there's been opposition all along. And Christ is commending them for their uh, perseverance in the, in the midst of this opposition. Perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. That's how he opens up. Uh, the Greek word oida, know, I know your deeds, indicates the Lord's knowledge in each of the seven letters. That, that word oida, um, opens up, it's in all the letters. The fact that Christ knows his church. Um, and it's an interesting word, this, the Greek word used for know. There's another Greek word that can be translated know as well, ginoshka. Uh, and it refers to a progressive acquisition of knowledge. Oida refers to complete and full knowledge. And so uh, the other Greek word for knowledge, ginoshka, could not apply to God. God the Father, God the Son. Does he ever learn anything new? 
He does not learn anything new. He knows everything. He doesn't gain new knowledge. He has already complete knowledge. He doesn't have to have a progressive um, uh, education process, if you will. Um, and so there's, there's some subtleties in the Greek language that allow that to come out. And we see that here in this passage. The fact that Christ has complete, total knowledge of his church. Um, and so it starts out with, I know your deeds. I have complete knowledge, complete understanding of your deeds. I know you, is what Christ is saying. And he says that in each of the seven letters. And so he knows them, and he knows us. He knows Hope Bible Church. He knows our deeds completely. Um, and so that's the way Christ is with his church. Complete knowledge of his church, and that's how he starts each of these letters. I know. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. He knows. The Lord of the church knows everything there is to know about the church, both good and bad. So that's good news, bad news thing. Christ knows everything about us. Um, yeah. Uh, such perfect knowledge is evident in each letter as the Lord condemns and commends the churches. He knows the good and he knows the bad. But before rebuking them for their failings, the Lord Jesus Christ commends the Ephesians for what they are doing right. He starts with building them up for what they're doing right. So he began by acknowledging their deeds. Uh, it's a general term summarizing all the things that follow. Uh, specifically, Christ first commends the Ephesian believers for their toil. Uh, your deeds and your toil. So your deeds... Um, are is a general term, and then the things that follow are an expansion on that uh, uh, that term um, deeds. So um, the word toil, kopos, uh, denotes labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion. So it's extreme toil. It's a um, it's an extreme word in Greek. It, you're, you're not, it's, not, uh, it's not just general toil. It's not just, oh, you're going about your daily business. This is really working hard for Christ and for his gospel to the point of sweat and exhaustion. That's the connotation of that Greek word toil. So they, the Ephesians were diligent, diligent workers for the cause of Christ. Um, he's commending them for that. So they weren't spectators. They didn't have a spectator mentality. They, were, um, they didn't want to be merely entertained. They were willing to do the spiritual work, plowing, planting, harvesting, uh, to do that spiritual work. And Christ commends them for that, being willing to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of evangelism and uh, spreading the gospel. So, and remember, of course, they're in the midst of this pagan darkness, that's surrounding them in this city. And so they were evidently aggressively evangelizing the lost and edifying the saints and caring for those in, the, in need. So they were toiling, uh, doing what a church is supposed to do, and he's commending them for that. And then he tells them, he, he, he commends them for their perseverance. Uh, that translates a Greek word, hupomone, uh, which denotes patience in trying circumstances. So it's, that's particularly, um, the, the context there for that word is always circumstances, difficult circumstances. 
So he's commending them for the fact that they're here they are in this city with terrible darkness, uh, pagans that are opposing them, and they're persevering under those trying circumstances. There's another word, a synonym for uh, perseverance, macrothumia, macrothumia generally emphasizes patience with people. Uh, that's different, a different kind of patience. Uh, patience with people. This is patience under external circumstances, not necessarily uh, just people. Um, Hupomone uh, does not demote, denote a grim fatalistic resignation, but a courageous, courageous acceptance of hardship, suffering, and loss. So it's not fatalistic, oh well, everything is against me and I guess I'll just have to persevere. Um, it's more a courageous acceptance that yes things are difficult but I'm going to accept these hardships and I'm going to continue on Um, there's a little subtlety to that uh, that Greek word as well and so this commendation indicates that despite their difficult circumstances the Ephesian church remained faithful to the Lord Um, so they're a faithful church they're commended for that in spite of what we're about to read. Um, So uh, there's another uh, praiseworthy aspect of the Ephesian believers. They refused to tolerate evil men. In other words, um, they wouldn't, the false teachers, uh, when they tried to come in, they immediately recognized them and they immediately expelled them. They held to a high holy standard of behavior and were sensitive to sin, um, undoubtedly following the Lord's mandate to practice church discipline. So this is one of the purposes of church discipline, is to keep the body pure when somebody tries to come in and is a false brother or false teacher. So four decades earlier, before this, when Paul was there, he had commended them not to give the devil an opportunity, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And they were still reluctant to do so. Uh, Nor was the Ephesian church lacking in spiritual discernment, since it put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not. So they had spiritual discernment. They never forgot the admonition Paul had addressed to their leaders many decades earlier. So as I mentioned in Acts chapter 20, Paul's in Miletus. He's about to go back to Jerusalem. And, he, and the, the last thing he does before he goes back to Jerusalem is he calls the elders from the church in Ephesus and he gives them this admonition. Uh, Genesis, uh, Acts 20, uh, verse 17 to 38. Um, and he tells them at the end of that passage, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw you away to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert. And so this is Paul. He had been there for three years uh, working in this church, teaching this church. He, he had taught these elders, and now the, he, he called these elders to himself before he goes back to Jerusalem to give them this last pep talk. And this is, what, this is one of the last things he tells them is to watch out for these false teachers trying to get in. And so you can see even four decades later, they're still doing that. They're heeding Paul's admonition from 40 years earlier 
to watch out for these wolves coming in, wolves in sheep's clothing trying to come in and tear up the flock. The elders are still faithful to that. We can see that from Christ commending them for it. So false teachers, of course, pose a constant danger to the church. uh, Satan is always trying to get wolves in sheep's clothing into the church. Um, And so there's many warnings in the New Testament over and over again to watch out for false teachers trying to come into the church. And Acts chapter 20 is just one of the most famous ones. And uh, Christ is pointing out here at the beginning of this letter that the Ephesians are doing this right. Um, Jesus warned about false prophets uh, in Matthew chapter 7, for example. Um, uh, John in uh, 2 John warned about deceivers who were coming from the world. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the true teaching, um, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. 2 John, chapter, uh, 2 John verse 10. Uh, Paul confronted false apostles in Corinth. Uh, unmasking them with this description. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians. So uh, many, many, many of the books of the New Testament have warnings about false teachers. It's a constant theme uh, in the New Testament. Uh, And through all the difficulties that they had faced over 40 years, this hard labor and patient enduring trials, um, they persevered. Um, they endured, Jesus declared, for the highest of motives, for his name's sake. And they had done so without growing weary. Uh, they had not yielded to disappointment, ingratitude, or criticism. So they remained faithful to the Lord, loyal to his word, to the work in which he had called them. However, everything was not perfect in the church at Ephesus. Um, However, at the end, he does give one more, one last um, um, commendation that they uh, hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. It's interesting that he uses such a harsh word like hate for the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Um, I'll just uh, very briefly go through the Nicolaitans. They're mentioned also in the letter to Pergamum. We'll see. Uh, but there's very little known about the Nicolaitans. We don't, we don't find, there's nothing else in the scriptures about the Nicolaitans. And we don't see much in the early church fathers about the Nicolaitans, just a little bit. Uh, the few references to the heresy link it to Nicholas, one of the seven men appointed to oversee distribution of food in Acts chapter 6. Some argue that Nicholas was a false believer who became an apostate, but retained influence in the church because of his credentials as one of those original seven in Acts chapter 6. Others suggest that the Nicolaitans misrepresented his teaching. So it wasn't Nicholas himself, but people that said they were following Nicholas, but really were uh, heretics. But it's not certain. We can't be certain. It's not, not in the scriptures, and there's not much about it in the early church fathers. However, what there is about the Nicolaitans in the early church fathers' writings is all about immorality and wickedness. And so that makes sense in the context of Ephesus, that there were people that were trying to get that sort of behavior into the church. Irenaeus wrote of the Nicolaitans that they they lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. So that's one thing that we have from the early church fathers about the Nicolaitans. Clement of Alexandria added that the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. So there's, not, there's scant writing about the Nicolaitans, but what we have, you kind of get a picture that they were probably these 
pagan, they had lived lives of pagan indulgence. Now they were pretending that they were Christians and trying to get into the church, but still practicing these same wicked behaviors. Um, and Christ is saying, you hate those deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Christ says. Uh, and so this is an additional commendation that's tacked on at the end of this little letter. Uh, so the Ephesian church did not tolerate these Nicolaitans, but hated their heretical teachings. So an additional uh, commendation that's tacked on at the end, actually, after he chastises them for their failings. So let's get to the chastising of failings. So then, so after commending them, so building them up, telling them what they're doing right, Christ then comes to his admonition against them. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So, despite all the praiseworthy elements of the church, the omniscient gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ had spotted a fatal flaw. They maintained doctrinal orthodoxy and continued to serve Christ. But that service had degenerated into mechanical orthodoxy. So though at one time they had love, 40 years later the affection of the first generation of believers had cooled. The current generation was maintaining the doctrine handed down to them, including watching out for false teachers, all these other things. But, according to Christ, they had left their first love. That love should include love for God and Christ, love for each other, love for the lost. Um, and so, love... Now, of course, we need to understand what the Bible means when it says love. And it's not the same thing as our culture means when it says love. Biblical love is an act of the will to put somebody else's needs above my own. Um, and so love is to put somebody else first, to put somebody else's needs uh, above my own. Um, and the, the kind of love, the, the love that was expected of Christians for uh, uh, Christ and for one another and for the lost, that had grown cold in these believers. They had sunk to the place where they were carrying out their Christian responsibilities with diminishing love for the Lord and for others. So they were still going through the motions. They still knew what they were supposed to do. And Christ actually commended them for that, continuing to do what they were supposed to do. However, Christ could also look into their heart and see that their heart wasn't right. Um, they, they were kind of going through the motions without the, um, the, the, the right spiritual condition of their heart to, do, to, to, to provide the, um, what was supposed to be the foundation for the deeds that they were doing. That foundation was eroding. Christ could see that. Um, and so he, he called them out on it. Uh, the great physician issued a prescription to the Ephesians, which if followed would cure their spiritual malaise. And so he not only pointed out the problem, but he also gave them the solution. Um, remember where you've fallen. Uh, they were first needed to remember. Uh, literally, that Greek word, the tense there is to keep on remembering. 
keep on remembering uh, where you have fallen from where you have fallen. Forgetfulness is frequently the initial cause of spiritual decline, and the Ephesians needed to recognize the seriousness of such a lapse. In other words, externally things still looked like they were fine for the Ephesian church, and they were complimented for that. However, Christ is warning them the foundation is cracking. And if the foundation cracks, and if you don't repair it, then there are going to be bad consequences. Uh, So they needed to recognize the seriousness of it. They needed to repent uh, in a deliberate rejection of their sins, because to fail to love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength is a sin. That's a command that we're given, and if we're not following that command, then we're disobedient and sinful. And so uh, Christ is putting that out, the seriousness of this and the need to repent. And finally, they needed to demonstrate the genuineness of the repentance by doing the deeds they did at first, going back to doing the deeds of loving Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as themselves. They need to recapture Uh, the richness of their Bible study and devotion to prayer and passion for worship that once had characterized them, but had cooled off. They were continuing to do the external things, but inside they were rotting away. So underscoring the seriousness of the situation, Christ gives a warning to the Ephesians uh, to take the necessary steps to recover their first love. Uh, And he gives a consequence if they don't. I demanded that they change or be chastised. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Uh, and oh, by the way, is, that, is the church still there in Ephesus? No, it is not. So that church died. Uh, he did come and take away their lampstand. It's dead. Uh, the coming to which Christ refers is not his second coming, obviously. He came and took away that lampstand uh, centuries, millennia ago. Um, so it wasn't, he wasn't talking about second coming. He was talking about that church collapsing, and, and it did collapse. Uh, failure to heed the warning would cause him to remove their lampstand, uh, which is obviously symbolic of the church, and Revelation one twenty made that clear, out of its place. And, and that happened. Uh, sadly, that church is gone. That church that had such a great beginning, that had three years of the Apostle Paul as their uh, uh, as their first senior pastor, if you will, and then had uh, the Apostle John come along and take over as senior pastor after him for 40 years. Um, that church is gone. Um, gone, long, long gone. Um, so the, the warning that Christ gave, uh, he actually, that came to pass. Um, the, 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 the lampstand was removed. Tragically, Christ threatened divine judgment that would bring an end to the Ephesian church, and he executed that that judgment uh, millennia ago. Uh, And then he closes, the letter closes with an exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the letter closes with the exhortation and a promise. His exhortation, he who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, listen to me. Listen to what I'm telling you. Um, 
And he repeats that uh, in the subsequent letter. Each of the seven letters ends, ends like this. It emphasizes the sober responsibility believers have to heed God's voice in Scripture. Listen, he's telling each of these seven churches in the first century, but he's also telling every single church since then in the last 2,000 years, listen to what I'm telling you. Uh, heed the voice of the one who has authority over his church, that is Christ. Listen to what I'm saying. Uh, the, Lord, the use of the plural pronoun uh, the plural noun churches makes it obvious that it's not just addressed to that one church. It's all the churches. Uh, it's the universal nature of this invitation at the end here when it says the churches, plural. Not just the church in Ephesus, for example. But this is the letter to the church in Ephesus, but he uses the churches to make sure everybody understands now he's talking to everyone here at the end of this letter. Uh, this call cannot be limited to just a group of overcomers in a single church. It must apply to all churches. Every church needs to hear every one of these messages. So uh, every one of these messages was read to all the churches. So the letter to Ephesus was read to all the other churches too. And, of course, read by every church since then because the Holy Spirit had it included in the Scripture. So every one of us has read the letter to the church in Ephesus and the letters to all the other churches. And at the end, Christ makes it clear that that's his intention. With the way he ends each one of these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, all of us, all the way down to today. We need to heed that voice, uh, heed this message. Uh, and then there's a promise, um, as, the, as are those associated with the other six letters. So there's, there's this promise occurs, the, the, um, the exhortation occurs in every letter, and this promise occurs in every letter as well. Uh, addressed to him who overcomes. The term does not refer to those who have attained some higher level of Christian life. It's to all Christians, to every one of us. Not to spe some special group. That's He who overcomes is not some special super-Christian. It's you. Um, so it, it's, it's, this promise is for you, for you and me. Uh, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So um, the Apostle John talks about overcoming this way in his first epistle. For whoever, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, all of our faith, overcomes the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's, who, who believes that Son of God? Every follower of Christ believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's who overcomes the world. And so John is clear. This is not some group of super-Christians. This is not... Uh, pastors of churches, this is us. This is all of us. The body of Christ overcomes the world with our faith. So all true believers are overcomers who have by God's grace and power overcome the damning power of the evil world system. So Christ promises here the overcomers at Ephesus and by extension all the overcomers that they will eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So the tree of life first appears in Genesis chapter 2 uh, when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden. That earthly tree was lost due to man's sin and he was forbidden to eat of it in Genesis chapter 3. 
But the heavenly tree of life, which we'll see later on in Revelation chapter 22, will last throughout eternity. The tree of life symbolizes eternal life. And the paradise of God, of course, is heaven. So, um, that's the letter. Uh, There's a book by Richard Mayhew. Richard Mayhew is a a professor at um, the Master's Seminary. And he's the co-author of MacArthur's Systematic Theology. So when, Car- when John MacArthur wrote his Systematic Theology, he chose Richard Mayhew to be his co-author. And Richard Mayhew also wrote a book called What Would Jesus Say About Your Church? Um, and so he goes through these letters and sees what Jesus said about those churches. And the idea of the book is to turn your gaze inward to your own church and, and try to consider, what would Jesus say to my church? What would Jesus say to Hope Bible Church? Um, and so he, he gives at the beginning of this book kind of um, a general description of how things are done, how Christ does things, how, how he addresses these letters. And he applies it to this Ephesian letter. And in this way, he says, first, confronting was done with love and with the goal of restoration. Second, encouragement preceded correction. Third, Christ openly and concisely stated the problem. Fourth, he told them how to be restored. Remember your past, repent of your error, return to your best days. Fifth, Christ clearly laid out the consequences if they did not obey. And sixth, he wrote with the expectation that they would respond positively. So he said, he who overcomes, that's how he ends it. He assumes that they'll respond positively, and this is what will happen if you respond positively. So that's the structure of this letter and really all the letters, uh, the way he does it. Um, but this is the structure of particularly applied to this letter to, to Ephesus. And so th- this is a good book. I would recommend it. Richard Mayhew's What Would Jesus Say About Your Church? The example of the Ephesian church warns that doctrinal orthodoxy and outward service cannot make up for a cold heart. In fact, if the heart is not on fire for Christ, the love is not there in the heart, then eventually the outward orthodoxy and the outward deeds will crumble. Um, That was Christ's warning that, that this can't go on. You won't be able to continue your outward devotion if your heart is not uh, your heart is not right. Um, believers must carefully heed Solomon's counsel. So we see this actually in the Old Testament. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. That's Proverbs four twenty three. Those who love God, uh, whose love for God has cooled, would do well to heed the exhortation from Hosea once again in the Old Testament, uh, describing Israel calling Israel to return to the Lord God uh, because their heart had grown old. And we see that in Hosea chapter 14. So this is a common theme, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And so, and in that same uh, chapter, Hosea chapter 14, God promises, I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely if they repent and turn back to him. And so, um, this is a common theme in the Bible of... Those who are supposed to be following God, uh, their heart, um, their heart not being right, their heart turning from God, and God promising that if they repent, He will heal them, He will restore them, 
it's the same in the Old Testament, same in the in the New Testament. So, uh, what we learned today. So we saw this letter to Ephesus. We saw the correspondent. We saw the church that it was going to. We talked a little bit about the city and the background. We talked about the commendation. Uh, the, 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 the things that they were doing right that Christ started with, the concern that he had, the identification of the problem, the command that he gives for how to fix it, and the counsel that he gives uh, to this church about what they're supposed to do and what the result will be if they don't and what the result will be if they do repent. Any questions? Yes. So we don't know much about what happened to Timothy afterwards. Um, so uh, he asked about, well, was Timothy around? Well, we know that earlier he had been there, but there's no indication that he was there uh, 40 years on. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know what happened to Timothy after this, as far as I know. Does anybody know of, of any writings in the early church fathers about what happened to Timothy afterwards? I don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that could be. Yeah. Right, so that is believable. Uh, I don't know for certain, but yeah, so it could be. We know that he did minister there. We don't know for how long or what happened to him, but yeah, maybe he was killed uh, in, in martyr in Ephesus. Yeah. So that's a recommendation for a book called Saved Without a Doubt by John MacArthur. All right. Any, uh, any last question? Yes. Uh, were the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans uh, of the teaching of Baal? So um, the, there is some reference in the, in the... There's another reference to Nicolaitans in, another, in a different letter that we haven't got to yet that, talks, that, that uh, compares them to the teaching of Balaam. Yes, there is that, that comparison. And we'll see that in a, in a, in a subsequent letter. Yeah. Any others? All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning, uh, gathered around your word. We thank you for all that you've taught us in your word. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for these descriptions. We thank you that you love your church enough to send these kinds of, uh, these kinds of letters, to include these letters uh, in the book of Revelation, in the inspired word of God, so that we have, uh, we have these warnings. Uh, we can see what happened to churches in the past, and we can use it to our benefit to make sure that we don't lose our first love. We pray, Lord, uh, that desperately that our hearts would be right, that our hearts would be attuned to you, that we would love you first and foremost uh, above all things, uh, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love um, our 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 fellow uh, believers, especially here at Hope Bible Church, we would love uh, one another and that that love for one another would be uh, something that the outside world would see and be drawn to you because of our love for one another. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have here in a few minutes to worship you together as uh, the body of Christ here at Hope Bible Church. And we pray that the worship that we offer you would be pleasing in your sight and bring glory to your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.